Brothers and sisters, will you turn with me in your Bible to our scripture reading this morning, which is Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. You can find that on page 86 of your pew Bibles. We'll be reading the whole chapter of Exodus chapter 33. This is the word of our God. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you. And I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way. For you are a stiff-necked people. And when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the Tent of Meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. And when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man who speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor, also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people? From every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, 
And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of a rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Thus far, the word of our God. Well, brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever had a bad case of buyer's remorse? Now, I'm not talking about that instant regret after purchasing an as-seen-on-TV gadget. I'm talking about that feeling in the pit of your stomach that tells you you've made a terrible mistake. Perhaps some of you have experienced something like this. You wake up the next morning wondering, was it all a bad dream? You didn't think you would fall for the sales pitch. You'd been drawn in, perhaps, by that offer of a free travel voucher or a meal, room upgrade. You didn't think you needed a timeshare. But the salesman had made it sound so convincing, didn't he? And yet, now here all you're left with is that sense of regret and the financial consequences of your rash decision. What we're finding in our passage this morning is that Israel is having a bad case of buyer's remorse. You see, they have traded in their trustworthy and faithful God for a shiny lump of gold. In the preceding chapters of Exodus, what we've seen is that the Lord has shown himself to be faithful and gracious to the people of Israel. As he redeems them and pulls them out of the land of Egypt, he displays his power over all of creation with the plagues on the Egyptians. As the people of Israel leave Egypt and are up against the Red Sea with the Egyptians bounding down against them, the Lord splits open the Red Sea and they cross on dry ground. And the Egyptian armies are consumed in the waters. And as the Israelites make their way to the promised land, the Lord provides for them bread from heaven, manna, water from the rock. And now as the people get to Mount Sinai, The Lord speaks to them from the mountain out of the fire and the thunder, as we already read this morning with the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20. And what we see here is that the people of Israel are this blessed and fortunate people to be have chosen out of all the nations of the earth to be God's people. And yet what happens? They become discontent and impatient. As Moses is up on the mountain of God, hearing the will for the people They turn to Aaron, and they ask him in the previous chapter, make gods that will go before us. And we know the rest of the story, don't we? Aaron makes for them a golden calf which they worship. And it's a grand irony that the disastrous word of judgment that God pronounces over the people in our passage this morning is directly related to their original request. You see, God's judgment on the Israelites in verses 2 through 3 is that he's no longer going to go with them into the land of promise, but is going to send a generic angel. It's as if God's saying to them, you want something or someone to go before you instead of me? That's fine. I'll send an angel. At first glance, this judgment doesn't sound very bad, does it? I mean, God's not pulling a Sodom and Gomorrah raining down fire and brimstone on the Israelites, wiping them off the face of the planet. And in fact, that is what they deserve for their idolatry, if we're honest. God's not even wiping his hands of them, saying, fine, 
do whatever you want, go back to Egypt for all I care. No, God's still going to give to them the land of promise. He's still going to drive out the inhabitants of the promised land. They still get all the physical blessings which God has promised to them. And so we might ask ourselves, why are the Israelites having such an extreme response of remorse in verses 4 through 6? For all their unfaithfulness, the Israelites, they recognize something that many today miss. God's offered to bless them without having a relationship with them. It's perhaps something like the adulterous wife whose husband graciously gives to her the house, the car, the dogs, the 401ks. She gets everything in the divorce except for him. And to our modern ears, that sounds like a pretty good deal, doesn't it? She gets everything and she's the offending party. But isn't that what so many today would like? See, most people would like God to overcome their obstacles. Many people would like to reach that promised land. They'd be happy if God would just defeat all their enemies. As one commentator says, many have made a decision for Christ so they can get into heaven, but they're not living with him as their savior and their God. And yet, unlike so many today, the Israelites seem to understand that if God's not with them, if his presence isn't going before them, well then, all the physical blessings are not worth it. And so you might ask yourselves this morning, are you merely content with the physical blessings from the Lord? It could be so easy for us to beat up on the Israelites. They seem so foolish. God speaks to them from the mountain, and within 40 days they're worshiping a golden calf, right? But for all their foolishness and disobedience, they recognize the truth of their circumstances, and they repent. You see, they're devastated at the news of God's judgment, and they mourn. One of the things we want to recognize in all of this is that this judgment of God is a natural outworking of their sin. You see, God and sin, they can't cohabitate. In verse 5, God tells the people, if for a single moment I would go up among you, I would consume you. See, sin, it separates God's people from his presence. Sin brings with it judgment. This is a fact made clear all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, they're removed from the garden and that personal presence of the Lord because of their sin. He can no longer fellowship with them. He can no longer commune with them because of their sin. In fact, what we've actually seen through this whole account of the redemption of Israel, the bringing and redeeming of this people, is a reversal almost of what happened in the Garden of Eden. You see, the tabernacle was meant to be situated in the middle of the camp of the Israelites. So in a very real way, what's God doing? He's dwelling once again in the midst of his people. The tabernacle was to be where God would dwell with his people. It might be tempting for us as we continue reading in verse 7 that this tent of meeting, uh, we might have our ears go off thinking, well, this must be that tent of meeting that was to be part of the tabernacle. But we want to recognize that this is a a second kind of tent, a tent of meeting that would be situated outside the camp, not within, where people would meet with God, specifically 
Moses. And this situation of the tent of meeting, most likely set up between the camp and the mountain, it further shows the people by physical, visible sign that God cannot dwell among them. God's physically showing his people that he would meet with his uh, people with this cloudy pillar descending on the tent. But God's no longer going with the people. It's all because of their sin and idolatry. Israel here is in need of some help. They need someone to intercede for them. They need a mediator, a go-between. And so in steps Moses. He's the servant who pleased God, whom God talked with face to face, we're told. This is the servant who pleased God, and he begins to make intercession for his people in verse 12. It must have been with nervousness as the Israelites all stood at the tent, uh, the entrance of their tents as they watched Moses uh, walk out to this tent of meeting once more, wondering, is God going to even talk to Moses? Is he even going to listen? And as Moses enters the tent and the cloudy pillar comes down once more, it must have been with relief as they wonder, will God hear our leader? What we see through this whole uh, intercession of Moses is a wonderful example of the perseverance of prayer on Moses' part. Notice firstly how in verse 12, Moses points to God's own command to him. Now, what Moses is doing here is not only pointing to God's command earlier in the chapter, but he's actually pointing a lot further back, all the way back to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3 is the burning bush incident where God called Moses to be the leader of his people. I want to look at that very briefly with you. Uh, If you could turn, actually, just 30 chapters earlier to chapter 3 of Exodus. That's found on page uh, 54 and 55. Just want to read a few verses there. Exodus chapter 3. We're going to start reading at uh, verse 10 and just read uh, until verse 13. God speaking to Moses from the bush, saying, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? But he said, I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I've sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Do you see here how God had reassured Moses all the way back in the beginning that he himself would be with Moses? We see that this promise of God's presence going with Moses is is sealed with a sign, a promised sign. That Moses would serve God on that very same mountain. And what we're seeing actually in our passage this morning is a fulfillment of that promised sign. You see, Moses had met with God at the burning bush on Mount Horeb. Another name for Mount Horeb is Mount Sinai. And it's in fact mentioned in our passage in verse 6 that Mount Horeb is the place where they're at right now. And so in essence what's happening here is that Moses is worshiping God on that very same mountain that he was promised he would back in Exodus chapter 3. And so what's Moses doing here? He's pointing back to that promise that God would be with him. 
way back when he first got called. It's actually very likely that where Moses is situated right there in that tent is perhaps even closely located to where that burning bush was, where he was told to take off his sandals for he was on holy ground. And so when Moses points back and says, whom will you send with me, in verse 12, he's pointing back to that promise of God. In addition to all this, we see Moses point to the favor he has personally found with God. By pointing to this favor, he knows that God has for him. He's seeking to connect that to the rest of Israel. He says in verse 13, Consider too, this nation's your people. And isn't this what a good mediator does? A good mediator is someone who can identify with those he's mediating for. As Moses then continues this mediation between God and Israel, it's fascinating to see how he continues to build his case before the Lord. He continues to point back to God's promises. He continues to point back to God's faithfulness, not only first to himself, but then connecting that by extension to the rest of Israel. But notice, brothers and sisters, what's the Lord's response in verse 14? The Lord tells Moses that his presence will go with you, singular. I will give you singular rest. See, the Lord's not even acknowledging in this interaction yet that the Israelites as a whole. The Lord only continues to make this interaction solely about Moses and himself. And yet, in each of these interactions, Moses continues to connect the Israelites to himself, seeking to draw the favor of the Lord to the Israelites. Moses makes another beautiful connection as he proceeds. How will others know? How will others know? What makes Israel distinct from the rest of the peoples of the earth, other than that God himself goes with them? This is what makes Israel unique. It isn't the miraculous deliverance from Egypt. It isn't that the Lord has been providing for them in the wilderness. It's the fact that the Lord himself dwells among them. It's the Lord himself and the favor that he shows towards his people. And this hasn't changed, even for us today. What makes us here distinct from the rest of the world? It isn't this church building. It isn't the many blessings that uh, believers often receive. But it's that the Lord dwells here in this community with us. It's the Lord himself, the presence of the Lord. We too are called to be distinct from the world. In the world, but not of the world, right? We're called to be different. Because God dwells with us. Now the Lord at this point, in verse 17, he relents of this disaster which he threatened. He tells Moses in verse 17, This very thing that you have spoken I will do for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Once again, the Lord is making this whole intercession event uh, uh, circling around Moses. It's not so much the Lord Lord relents because of the mourning and the repentance of the people, but it's because of the intercession of his servant Moses. And it's because Moses has found favor in the sight of the Lord that he relents. And so once again, what we see here is a picture of the need that the Israelites had for a mediator. The need that someone would intercede on their behalf. 
See, sin is separating the people from the Lord their God. God's to dwell with them along with their sin. He's going to consume them. Consume them. Sin has no place before the Lord. Sin must be dealt with. It's this mediation, this intercession of another that saves Israel from being divorced from God. Now, it doesn't take a talented pastor or even a seminary student to see how clearly all of this points to Christ and his mediating work for us. You see, we too are like Israel, aren't we? Prone to worship and serve idols. We have this natural propensity inclination towards sin. John Calvin, the reformer, once said, human hearts are an idol factory. Now, perhaps, I hope, that none of you are tempted to make a golden image and worship it. But we have our own idols that we create, don't we? Things which we look to to lead us. Things that we find our security in. Things like money, political leaders, family, sports, all sorts of things. The list is long. What do you look to to provide for yourself? We're called, however, to look to something else, rather someone else, an even greater mediator than Moses, uh, Israel ever had in Moses. You see, while Moses had found favor with God, he's still a sinner. Ultimately, what we need is a mediator who is without sin, and yet who can identify with us in all our weaknesses. A person who can point to themselves and be found perfect in every way. And this person is Jesus of Nazareth. You see, he came to earth to be the perfect mediator for you. On the cross, he bore the consequence of your idolatry. Jesus experienced the complete absence of the presence of the Father on the cross, so you never have to. In his resurrection, he shows that he is victorious over sin. It's finished. No longer need to worry that God cannot dwell with you because of your sin. Because of Jesus, God dwells not only here in our presence by the Holy Spirit, but he dwells within each of us. You see, we have it so much better than Israel ever did. Not only do we have and know this perfect mediator, Jesus, but we have his word and his spirit. We don't have to rely on Moses to bring us the will of God. We can study it ourselves each and every day. Through Christ, we can boldly approach the throne of Christ knowing that we're fully accepted, that we're fully loved in Jesus Christ by faith. Now, perhaps you know this love and acceptance. I hope you all do. And yet, some of you perhaps have wandered. Life becomes busy. You no longer fellowship with the Lord, perhaps as you once had. Your heart grows cold. This morning, the Lord calls you. Just as the Israelites were being brought into the promised rest, Jesus offers rest for the weary. Jesus welcomes all those to find their rest in him. Not just for the first time, but for the thousandth time. You see, you were made for fellowship with him, and he did everything to reconcile you to himself. You don't need to shape up before you come to him, because it was while you were yet a sinner that he died for you. 
You don't need to live any longer in loneliness. You don't need to live like a hamster on a wheel trying to satisfy those cravings of your heart. You see, Jesus fully satisfies. And so come to him today and find your rest. Because Christ doesn't make any mistakes. He never made a mistake when he redeemed you. He's never had, never will have buyer's remorse. And yet, Christ is the one who got the worst deal ever. The worst trade. But he did this all fully knowing what he was doing. He never got tricked by some slick salesman. We call this trade the great exchange. In theology, it's called double imputation. It's a big word, but what it basically means is that Christ trades his perfect righteousness, his perfect goodness for our sin. Uh, His righteousness is imputed and transferred to us while our sin is transferred to him. Double imputation. We have to admit this was a terrible deal for Jesus Christ. And yet it's for this very reason that he came to earth. He tells us, That it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. And so as we trust in this work of Christ, as we come to know him and this glorious work, it begins to warm us, doesn't it? Should. And yet we all struggle with growing cold, don't we? Don't we all need to be encouraged to grow in this warmth? When we spend time with Jesus, however, when we keep our eyes on him, well, it begins to, have a, begins to create this craving for more, more of him. You see, a God who would express this kind of love for you, well, fellowship with him is better than any physical blessing we could ever receive here on earth. Now, while the Israelites, they have a sense of this truth, as we see in our passage, it's actually in the final verses that we see it more fully realized and expressed in Moses. Moses is the more ideal representative of who Israel should be. It's Moses who more fully expresses this desire to be in God's presence more and more. You see, as God communes with Moses, Moses wants more. He's not satisfied. He wants to know God more. He wants to see God more fully. He wants to experience a deeper and deeper presence of the Lord. While the Israelites have understood that relationship that blessings without relationships are vain, it's in Moses that we see something even more developed. You see, this man who had spoken face-to-face with God, well, he wants to know this God of glory even more fully. And isn't this what God's presence does to his children? As we come to know him better, it should naturally encourage a stronger desire to be in his presence even more. And yet, if you're like me, you're convicted by this fact. Because we often find the desires of this world to be so strong. We find ourselves wanting the physical blessings, the things of this world more than fellowship with him. I think it's helpful for us to reframe this thinking, however. C.S. Lewis makes this helpful observation. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition with infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You see, when we begin to recognize the glory and the beauty of Christ, 
We'll begin to understand, like Moses, how much better he is than anything this world can offer. And we need constant reminders of this very fact. That Jesus is better. That his presence is better. But how do we do this? How do we deepen our desires for the Lord? It's by spending time with him. In his word. In prayer. In the fellowship of his saints. Gathering. Like you do here on Sunday. And as we fellowship with and trust in Christ and his saints, by his Holy Spirit, we will deepen our desire to fellowship with him. And this will begin a kind of spiral motion, a cycle. And as we see God's glory in Jesus, we will long for more. This is a promise given to us in Psalm 37, where it says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. As you find your delight in the Lord, he will give you more of himself. He promises. As you begin to understand by the Holy Spirit's help this glorious work, it will instill a craving to know him and his goodness more, to know him personally and his presence better. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you all this morning to look to that glorious mediating work of Christ, to spend time with him in in his word and in prayer. Bask in his glory. And may it stir up in each of you a greater passion to know him better. May it stir up an ultimate desire to be with him in all his glory in that new Jerusalem to come. And until then, would you continue to rest and trust in the perfect mediating work of Jesus Christ. Amen. I'd like to close with a prayer of application that's actually written by A.W. Tozer. Let's pray. O God, we have tasted thy goodness, and it has both satisfied us and made us thirsty for more. We're painfully conscious of our need for further grace. We're ashamed of our lack of desire. O God, the triune God, we want to want thee. We long to be filled with longing. We thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show us thy glory, we pray thee, so that we may know thee indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love within us. Say to our soul, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Then give us the grace to rise and follow thee up from this misty lowland where we've wandered so long. Amen.